Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 15 and we're looking at the first Khoi-Dutch War of 1659 to 1660. Up to now, the relationship between the Dutch and the various Khoi tribes on the Cape Flats have been rife and filled with chaos. Things, as you'll hear, are not going to improve or settle down. By January 1659, Daman, one of the Khoi translators we heard about last week, had become disillusioned about the Dutch aims in the Cape. He had seen the VOC in action after a trip to the far east, to the Dutch capital Batavia, and was impressed by the organizational capacity and power. But now, back home, Doman was aware that the Khoi people were no longer able to fully control their lives. And he was angry with Jan van Riebeck for taking three Khoi chiefs hostage as the Dutch tried to force the Khoi to bring back their escaped slaves. And worse, the Europeans had begun to show signs of settling in for the long haul. After all, the first tranche of Freeburgers had just been given their 28-hectare plots around modern-day Rondebosch and between the Lisbeek and Salt Rivers, which was prime Khoi grazing land. Now it was out of bounds to people who had seen generations use the same land. The census in December 1658 had revealed that the company was farming over 300 hectares of Cape Peninsula land. Stock thefts began to take place in earnest in January 1659, and the Freeburgers were the victims to a large extent. They had started farming, as we heard in that year, and the Khoi focused on their small herds, as there was not much that the Dutch could do in their little isolated farms. Only Duman was left alone at the fort in January, as the other Khoi took to their heels, worried that the increasing theft would drive the Dutch to take some kind of vengeful action against individuals. The irony is, Duman had been planning a major uprising for the previous few months, but has decided to bide his time until the next winter. And at the same time, van Riebeck decided to send a heavily armed group of his men overland to find the centre of gold production in southern Africa, Monomotapa. This, of course, was mad. He had no idea that Monomotapa was close to 2,000 kilometres away in Zimbabwe. But the reports from the Portuguese and Arabs spoke of this immense city of gold, so that was highly motivational. On the way, this group would stop off at the Namakwa tribe, living close to the Orange River, around 30 days' walk away who the Dutch believed would be able to direct them to this centre of treasure. The intrepid party set out in February 1659, but was ill-provisioned. It was also moving into the hinterland in the middle of an extended period of drought in the Cape. As they travelled, however, they did collect more accurate information about exactly which Khoi tribes surrounded the peninsula. And so, they grouped these into three distinct peoples once more. Firstly, those the Dutch called the Cape Men, comprised of the Goren Haikwa under the fat chief or captain, Gogosha. They were the Gorekutkwa, nicknamed the tobacco thieves. These people would leave the Cape in later years to become the Korana, who roamed the northern Cape, as we'll hear. Then there were the watermen, or beachcombers, the strandlopers, Harry's people, called the Goren Haikona. Then the second main group were the true soldanas, who were feared by both Khoi on the flats and the Dutch. Their Khoi name was the Kokotwa. Two main chiefs led these people, Ingenomwa and Wadashwa. They could be found behind the mountains northeast of the peninsula. The Gunakwa, who lived further inland, where Namakwaland is now, and were part of the true Soldanas, and this was part of a second subgroup. And a third subgrouping of the true Soldanas were the Hosoma, who lived west of the Tigerberg Mountains, and later these people would become known as the Grigrikwa. The third main group of Khoi peoples 
the Dutch had heard of or met were the Namakwa, who supposedly lived close to Monomotapa, and of course this was total fantasy. The Dutch had built up this belief about the city of gold, which supposedly lay a few hundred kilometers away, but of course as we outlined, it's more like 2,000, and they were definitely not the Namakwa. This expedition sent by van Riebeck failed dismally. By early March 1659, they had arrived back in the peninsula, making it as far as the Great Berg River below the Picketberg. They met groups of Khoi who were not happy to see them. Then later groups of sand people who were even less happy to see them. They brought back tales of the dry, barren landscape that is the feature of the inland area of the Cape. Then in May 1659, the freemen approached van Riebeck once more about the constant theft of their implements and cattle, and they'd had enough. They petitioned the VOC Council, appealing for action to be taken against the Khoi, who had been pilfering their livestock. The Khoi were also prone to removing the metal parts of the wooden plows and any tools they found attached. Then in mid-May 1659, heads of cattle were stolen from the Freeburgers just to add insult to injury. This time, the Khoi who took the cattle also killed the young boy minding the animals. It was Doman's doing. He had convinced some of the younger men to join his action against the Dutch. Doman told his force to avoid killing the whites and to focus on taking their food, which would in effect drive them away. He knew by avoiding murdering the Freeburgers, it would make it far more difficult for van Driebeck to convince the VOC that he should take direct military action against the Khoi. Local councillor van Hoens proposed that the VOC then build a canal and began to preach a kind of pre-apartheid vision, saying the Khoi and Dutch should be segregated forever, but his boss van Riebeck was considering a far more radical solution. He wanted full integration, marriage between Khoi women and the Dutch. In the meantime, the Kaapmen Khoi were warned to keep on the far side of the Lisbjerg Salt River Divide, but the low-intensity war then built into a full-scale conflict between the two peoples. Doman's men were caught up in the internal bickering with other Khoi groups, so it was not a simple matter of black versus white. But what this little war did was to influence the military system of the entire colony. The company's troops were a cosmopolitan lot, mercenaries mainly of Dutch or German extraction. Their strength varied, as Batavia had first choice of the best men, but at this time there were around 170 to call on, and they were a tough lot. The Freeburgers were called on too to supplement the garrison at times of stress. From the start, part of their job was to defend the redoubts built on the farms, now in the midst of the Khoi War. They were organised into musketeers, the nucleus of the Cape Burger Infantry. It was the start of what would eventually turn into the Boer Commando system. It featured a council of war or Kreisrat, a captain of the militia, two burger councillors, a sergeant, a corporal, and a paid secretary with a war chest replenished with fines for dereliction of duty. Demand's actions were worrying van Riebeck. His men had been attacking the Dutch during the night and while it rained. As I mentioned last podcast, this made the matchlock muskets almost useless and had an effect on the flintlock weapons too. There was no formal announcement that a war was underway, but by all intents and purposes, that was the real situation. Despite Demand's orders, he appears to have been the first to break the no-killing-of-free-men rule. One of the white farmers had been attacked and speared to death and his cattle and sheep stolen. The Khoi workers at the fort then fled, believing they'd feel the wrath of retribution. Doman had taken to his heels, and at this stage the only Khoi left at the fort was Eva, the translator. Her story is fascinating, and I'll cover it properly next episode. What worsened the situation for the Dutch was that the drought appears to have suddenly broken. It rained constantly in the last weeks of May 1659, and they found it very difficult to fight the Khoi with wet gunpowder. 
matches were running low, and even wood because they could not cut down timber. In the last week of May, a large group of Khoi thought to number 400 attacked the farm Bosjevel and a soldier was wounded in that incident. By mid-June the Cape Flats were drenched and flooded and both sides found it difficult to move around so a kind of ceasefire began. Eva was being used by the Dutch as a form of intermediary by now, not just a translator. She was being sent to speak to the Cape men or the Gonghatwa and to convince them to seek medical help from the Dutch surgeon Meerhof. Eva would eventually marry Meerhof and they would have two children together who'd end up in Mauritius, but that's a story for later, as I said. At this point, Eva had convinced Van Riebeck that she needed to travel by wagon to the Khoi, which of course irritated him because this was somewhat of a luxury. But it serves to highlight how relationships were developing in the Cape, where the black woman was allowed to use company wagons as her limousine, so to speak. By July, the war of attrition between the two sides was well underway, and it was decided to send a war party of Dutch soldiers and sailors from a VOC ship just docked at the jetty to try and recapture some of these missing cattle. 150 men, 70 from the garrison and 80 from the ship named Hetzlot van Honingen, under the leadership of Fiskal Gapperman, left one Sunday night with their orders. Doman must be captured or killed, and the price on his head, 100 florins. They managed to kill half a dozen Khoi men linked to Duman, but on the 18th of July, there was a bit more bad news for the Dutch, although they managed to nip the bad news in the bud. More than a dozen slaves from Guinea had been plotting to join the uprising, but they were outed by one of their group and then chained up. Then in September, the Khoi wife of one of the Dutch freemen farmers was beaten up by a Khoi raiding party, and her treatment was revenged by the others who opened fire on any Cape men they saw. The incidents and skirmishes continued on a daily basis, with no one apparently being able to seize the upper hand. Eventually, in early January 1660, word spread that both the Dutch and Khoi were tired and both sides clearly wanted to end this spate of killings. There were a series of false starts to these discussions, but eventually, in June 1660, Van Riebeck discovered that some of the Freeburgers had been actively trading both with the Khoi they were supposed to be fighting, as well as passing French ships. The Freemen had found a way to bypass the VOC using methods as devious as loading meat under wagon loads of wood, they were cutting out the middleman, and Van Riebeck was that man. It also emerged that some of these freemen had taught their new Khoi business partners how to shoot a musket, particularly when hunting rhinoceros around the Cape for their horns. These Dutch vagabonds had also traded hundreds of sheep with passing ships. Van Riebeck took immediate action. The leader of these farm scallywags was Herman Ramian, originally hailing from Cologne in Germany. Earlier in the war, Ramayan kept making noises whenever the Dutch set up an ambush to trap the Khoi leading to their escape, and now it was clear why he'd done this. Van Riebeck had just thought of him as useless and stupid, but he was warning his Khoi trading partners. All this free trading left the VOC in a bad way once more. They only had 90 sheep, so it was clear the black market had brought some suffering on the fort's men. So what would Van Riebeck do? Not very much initially, he ordered Herman Ramayan to be fined and his ox and six sheep to be confiscated. It suggested that Van Riebeck took pity on him, having also himself been caught illegally trading all those years ago and fired by the VOC. Then the Khoi sued for peace, having finally given up any claim to the Lisbeek lands. They'd realized they were lost, but probably had no idea that they had been lost forever. Van Riebeck was also sick of the war and its impact on his trading station. Furthermore, Duman's hope of convincing the powerful Trois to join his war had failed when their chief, Odessa, 
had decided to take the prudent course and moved his people far away into the interior and out of harm's way. The Dutch had also become more effective, and while not able to inflict high rates of casualties, their raids against the peninsula Koi meant their trade was also at a standstill. So, duly in mid-1660, peace was restored. The Koi coin of the peninsula returned to their homes, and the Dutch did not take revenge. The reason was, as van Riebeck wrote, the Koi's complaint that they may have stolen a few head of cattle, but they had actually lost their all-important land. The Dutch were taking every day land which had belonged to them from all ages and on which they were accustomed to depasture their cattle, said one of the Koi leaders during the negotiations. He also asked in a pointed way whether were they to come to Holland, would they be permitted to act in the same way? This would be the crux of coming conflict between black and white in South Africa. The colonial farmers just did not understand the value of land held by the indigenous people. They thought because it was passed over by pastoralists, blacks did not value the land itself, and also because it was being allowed to lay fallow for long periods as the koi migrated back and forth, it looked empty and unused. It was the opposite. The land was the mother, and for the koi, the Dutch were raping their mother. We will return to this theme in the myth-making around who owned what land in the future. It's a constant debate in South Africa, with the apartheid government and other political leadership reinforcing the idea that because the Koi didn't have written documents showing who owned which part of what land, it could be taken away. This is a long story repeated across the world and still being repeated. The standoff in this first Koi-Dutch war was a defeat for the Koi. They had failed in the primary objective of driving the Dutch out of the Cape. Doman was exiled on Robben Island, setting the tone for the next 400 years of its use as an easily accessible rocky outcrop that was almost impossible to escape. The Koi Dutch war had also convinced Van Riebeck that he needed to mark out territory to manage the land as Dutch by rights, particularly since it had begun to be parceled out as freehold territory. To secure the lands, Van Riebeck gave orders that all barter was to be conducted at the fort itself, and that the Koi must always travel by road when inside the colonial border, which at that stage was a tiny area between the slopes of Table Mountain to the beach and towards the Lisbeek and Salt Rivers. He now marked out the boundary using large stakes and poles and began planting his famous bitter almond hedge from Salt River mouth to the mountain slopes behind Weinberg. He built three blockhouses along the line of the Lisbeek River, which he named Kirk 8, Kirtekui and Houtembul, Lookout, Turn the Cow and Hold the Bull, aptly named, you would say. Beyond this, at the edge of the sandy flats, he stationed a mounted guard at the Reiterborst. The system of flag signals was arranged to warn of impending attacks, and Alvin Rebeck and his colony sat down behind the hedge to begin the course of colonialism proper. This was the last comprehensive frontier that the colony would have until 1798. That's almost 150 years after the hedge was planted, enough time for the hinterland to become characterized by anarchy, as we'll see. The steps to define the VOC territory would lead to a rapid expansion of the Freeburgers, while at the same time, it was impossible to separate the Dutch from the Khoi on the peninsula. The Khoi had become extremely partial to the liquor and tobacco they were receiving in exchange for their cattle, and a terrible dependency had begun to grow. Steps were now taken to improve the earthwork fort at De Kaap, as the settlement was known. The earthwork had deteriorated in the heavy Cape winter rains. One of the redoubts had collapsed. Then again, it would only be properly refurbished 
by Cape Commander Zacharias Wagner after Van Riebeck left the Cape in 1662, along with a new stone design that was only completed in the mid-1670s. While livestock such as sheep and cattle dominated the lives of the farmers in the Khoi, another animal which the Dutch brought into the Cape was to revolutionise life there. That was the horse. Unlike all the other animals we've mentioned, including dogs, horses did not make the trip from North Africa to Southern Africa with the first farmers around 200 AD. They had been prevented from migrating south across the Sahara because of horse sickness endemic to Central Africa, caused by the trypanosome parasite injected by the bite of the tsetse fly. Van Riebeck's men at Dakar found they needed horses because the koi koi oxen were untrained for pulling carts or plows, although they were being ridden by koi like horses. In 1653, Van Riebeck had already imported the first four Javanese ponies, thought to be Arab-Persian stock from the Dutch East Indies. Keeping them alive was not easy because the Cape environment was full of an alarming array of parasitic and other diseases, including horse sickness. They were brought into the peninsula by migrating koi and their cattle. The grass at the Cape was also of poor quality, and of course there were lions and leopards in the mountains ready to munch the all-important horses. The first Koi Dutch War had prompted Van Riebeck to ask for more horses to be brought from the East Indies along with a pack of dangerous hunting dogs. They would be used to chase off small Koi raiding parties. So it was then that the main difference that developed between the Dutch and the Koi was the firearm and the horse. It marked a symbol of Dutch power over those who had neither and reinforced the narrative between settler and native Cape dweller. The new colonists began to develop a breed of horse that suited both their utilitarian transport needs and military pursuits. The original Indonesian ponies received an injection of bloodlines from around the world. This led to the iconic Burpat, or Cape Pony. This was no English thoroughbred, the type of which arrived much later and were used in horse racing. The Burpat was compact and short-legged, shaggy-coated and extremely hardy. They had strong constitutions and were immune to the local diseases. And in 50 years, the farmers who rode them developed their own style of riding, not trotting or slow walking, more like a comfortable canter, which became known as triple. That was over the next 50 years. Right now, there were a few dozen horses in the Cape in 1660, but already they were being used to push the boundaries outwards as Van Riebeck's men travelled further afield. Trading contacts would be increased with more distant Khoi Khoi chieftains and reducing the reliance on the Khoi dotted around the peninsula itself. It was precisely at this point, as the first Khoi-Dutch war ended in 1660, that the Dutch on horseback began to probe the hinterland. They moved further east, beyond the pinnacles of the Hottentots Holland Mountains, into the spreading coastal plains of the Tanukwa. East of these people, further towards where the Isikosa lived, were the Hesetkwa, who controlled the rich land south of the Langeberg from the Breda River to Mossel Bay. To the north, along the Atlantic coast, the land was less forgiving and the cattle fewer. The Khoi selling their important stock began to have problems replacing these vital animals. They began fighting each other more violently as the Dutch trade expanded. From the early 1660s, the Tranutkwa and the Tukukwa were caught up in this violence. When we return next episode, we'll hear more about these expeditions north and the response by the Khoi people, as well as updates on what was happening further afield in southern Africa. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. You can also email me through the site desmondlatham.blog or direct message me on Twitter at deslatham. Until next, tootsies.